Father, we're thinking wellness. We're thinking well-being. So what does that mean? We have this crown jewel across the road. But what does it mean? Open our minds these few moments we have. Engage, engage our thinking. Draw our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Forbes magazine ran a piece the other day. Title caught my eye. What would you pay for extra years of perfect health? They reported on a study by USB, that's the Union Bank of Switzerland, one of the most well-heeled financial institutions on earth. And it was a survey for the wealthy. It had two questions. How long do you expect to live? All right, fair enough. Question number two. What would you be willing to pay for 10 extra years of perfect health? I never got the survey. I was waiting, and it didn't come. So let me, let me just ask you, how long do you plan to live? The moment you heard that question, you wrote a number in your mind. How much would you be willing to pay for 10 years of perfect health? Well, the surveys went out, and the wealthy responded. You know how they responded? According to the survey, a whopping 53% of wealthy investors expected to live to 100. Isn't that something? Actually, though, uh, the expectation is totally out of sync for the actual numbers of the country or the region where they live. 53% to live to 100. Although, I'll tell you what, if you live in Berrien Springs, Michigan, it can happen to you again and again. I took a picture about four weeks ago. I'll put it on the screen for you. Humble little uh, snapshot. You see the man in the center of that picture? Yep, some of you were his students. That's uh, Paul Hamill, of course. You recognize the chairman of the music department. We were there for his 100th birthday bash about four or five weeks ago. The little lady standing in front of him, also a member of the Pioneer Memorial Church, that's Ann Bauer. Three weeks ago, she turned 105 years of age. Hold that picture up there. I want the alumni to see that. I'm telling you what, folks, if you want to live to 100, move back. Come on, move back to this community. We got housing. We have houses here. You can move back. You can move in. Uh, so they asked the wealthy, okay, you want to live to be 100, huh? Okay. They said, how much would you, would you be willing to pay? That's the second question on the survey. How much would you be willing to pay for 10 perfect years of hell? UBS discovered, perhaps not so surprising, that the wealthier you are, the greater the percentage of your wealth you're willing to give up for those 10 extra years. I won't tell you how much. I have a feeling all of us, if we were, ma- if we were offered that proposition, we'd be willing to sacrifice a little, just a little. Although, like, this, like, the, like the, the, the song says, can't buy me love, money can't buy me love, no. And money, we know, cannot buy, cannot buy longevity, cannot buy health, if it could. Steve Jobs of the Apple fame and fortune would be alive today, Right? So let's talk about love. Let's talk about longevity. Let's talk about, let's talk about life. They're calling it well-being around here. And Dominique Gumel, I tell you what, she is one. She was the right choice for the university to put in charge of university wellness. 
Dominique has us doing all kinds of stuff. In fact, alums, if you go to uh, andrews.edu slash wellness, you get all the same uh, mail-outs that we get. You can, fo- you can track this and do it at home. So I understand there are certain, there are certain uh, vital practices that we have to embrace if we want to deepen our lives, if we want to enrich our well-being. But what's fascinating is longevity, wellness, and life. The one differential, the one differential that makes the difference is something called love, L-O-V-E. Harvard University has run one of the longest longitudinal studies ever. They were tracking two groups, 75 years, for 75 years, two groups. The, the study is called the Grant and Gluck study. One study tracked 456 poor men growing up in Boston. I heard you talk about Boston a moment ago. Growing up in Boston from between 1939 and 2014. The other study, 268 male graduates from Harvard's business classes of 1939 to 1944. Due to the length of this study, 75 years, you can understand they kept going through research teams, new heads. I mean, they just... They took blood samples and analyzed them. Once bone scanning could be done, they did that. They did uh, self-surveys. They had actual personal interviews. And you know what they found out? Come on, let's go. The 75-year longitudinal study on the screen, the conclusion, cut to the chase. According to Robert Waldinger, director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development, one thing surpasses all the rest in terms of importance. Quoting him now, the clearest message that we get from this 75-year study is this. Good relationships keep us happier and healthier, period, end quote. In other words, what money can't buy, love can. Life, longevity, wellness. What was that line? Good relationships keep us happier and healthier, period. Now, Waldinger goes on, on the screen for you. It's not just the number of friends you have. And it's not whether or not you're in a committed relationship. It's the quality of your close relationships that matters. Do you have close friends? You don't have to have a lot of them. Do you have someone? According to George Valet, he's the Harvard psychiatrist who from 72 to 2004, that's 32 years, he actually managed this study. Here's the psychiatrist on the screen. He says, what are the, what are the essential elements? He identified two of them. One is love. The other is finding a way of coping with life that does not push love away. Wow. Money can't buy me love. <laughs> but look what love can do. Maybe it's all a gift. Consider the words of the last of the Mohegans. He's the last surviving disciple. We call him around here John Boy, but when he gets old, he self-designates as the Elder John. Open your Bible to the little tiny epistle of 3 John. You, you got Revelation, you go back, you got Jude, and then you're in 3 John. It's only half a page in my Bible, but I want you to catch this. This is, this is beautiful. This is 3 John. So there are no chapters. It's just verses. We'll read the first verse and then the second verse. All right, 3 John, beginning in verse 1. To my dear friend Gaius, whom I love in the truth. Dear friend, 
I pray that you may enjoy good health and that all may go well with you, even as your soul is getting along well. My dear friend, Gaius, I feel like such a kindred spirit with you. (laughs) I have three prayers for you. I want you to get this. Number one, I pray that you may enjoy good health. I'm talking about your body, boy. I'm talking about corpus. That's how we say it in Latin. I'm talking about corpus. I pray that you will have physical well-being that's so, that's so stunning that everybody around you notices. I got three prayers for you. Prayer number two, Gaius, I also pray that all may go well with you. Now, I'm talking about your mind. We call it men's in Latin. Your ambitions, your plans, your dreams. I want you to, to demonstrate a mental and intellectual well-being that is second to none. That's what I'm praying for you. I have three prayers for you. Here's prayer number three, that your soul may be getting along well. Now I'm talking about your spiritus, that soul inside of you, that you are. I'm praying that the well-being will so permeate your very soul that everyone will know your connection to Jesus. Isn't that amazing? One three-line prayer, the beginning of a tiny little epistle. And look what we end up with. Put it on the screen, please. We end up with Andrews University's Latin motto, man's corpus spiritus. We sing it in the song every convocation. It's the only time of year we ever sing that song, (laughs) probably for a reason. But, the, but the, the words that we sing, mens corpus spiritus, John wraps those three words together and he says, oh, my dear friend Chaos, I am praying, I am praying for your soul. I want to take that spiritus line, speaking of soul. They did a study over in England of 233 residents in retirement housing. Now, some of our alumni are retired by the time they come back to this place. They did a study of retirees. You'd be interested in this. Let me put it on the screen for you. Fascinating. Spirituality and religion appear to bring, one, a sense of personal meaning, two, control beyond one's own resources, three, comfort, and four, intimacy with a higher power. And they are like, these, these, these four are life-transforming, leading people to replace old values with new. The findings suggest that that older adults who derive a sense of meaning in life from religion tend to have higher levels of life, satisfaction, self-esteem, and optimism. If you're into spirituality and religion, guess what? That's you. You reap those four categories. And John the Elder says, hey, I'm at the end of my life. But you know what? That's what I'm praying for you. I'm I'm praying that your corpus will experience well-being. I'm praying that your men's will experience well-being. I'm praying that your spiritus will experience wellness, that you'll flourish, that you'll thrive in your well-being. By the way, college students are not to be left out. In Canada, they did a study of Canadian college students. Put that on the screen for you. This is just as interesting. Canadian college, college students who are involved in campus ministries. Now, you say, oh, that must be little Bible colleges in Canada. No, no, no. Come on, secular universities. Christians are everywhere. So even secular universities obviously have a campus ministries department. You have to. You've got a lot of Christians there. Kids who go to the campus ministries and say, yo, can I be involved? Help me. Integrate me into the life of this campus or the city around us. 
Here's what they found in Canada. Canadian college students who are involved in campus ministries, number one, visited the doctor less, all right? Number two, they also scored higher on tests of psychological well-being, what the psychologists call PWB. And number three, they coped with stress more effectively. You know, I pray, John the Elder writes to us, dear friends, I pray that your soul is getting along well. In fact, I want to share with you, I went to the website of the University of Northern Iowa, not a Christian school at all, but on their website, they're very big on well-being too, just like we are. They, they included this little DIY, Gen Zers, who are the customers right now at Andrews University, Gen Zers. They're, they're the ones born between 1995 and 2006. That means they're between 13 and 24 years of age. These Gen Zers are big on these DIYs. You know what it stands for, DIY? Do it yourself. So here's a DIY guide for spiritual well-being and health, all right? Jot these down. Oh, by the way, you have to pull out your uh, study guide. This is, this is the only time you're going to need the study guide. All the quotations we've looked at, you'll have, but pull out your study guide from your worship bulletin and drop down to those, that DIY guide. Starting a little, new little series that'd be focusing on some of these DIYs. Drop down to the, at the bottom there, those of you that are watching right now on a screen somewhere, you see there at the bottom of the, of this picture on your screen right now, www.newperceptions.tv. You go there. You'll have this. You're looking for this, a DIY, DIY guide to becoming the healthiest university in the world when well-being means more than being well. Okay, we got that. Now, let's go. Jot it down. Just these five. Five strategies to grow spiritually. Number one, be quiet. Oh, I like that. <laughs> be quiet. Spiritual truths often come in the form of a still, small voice that is difficult to hear above the chaos and confusion of a frantic lifestyle. Set aside time for solitude and meditation. Just some quiet. You give the earbuds a rest. But in that silence, what do you hear? Number two, be open to the spiritual. Well, I like that. Spiritual experiences often come in unexpected forms and packages. You never know what's waiting around the corner, but be open to it. Maybe that would be God's way of, of, of engaging your mind, your spiritus. Number three, be inquisitive and curious. An, act, an attitude of active searching increases your options and your potential for spiritual centering. Meditation may very well allow you to experience tranquility and peace. Be inquisitive. Check it out. Follow those questions. Number four, only five of these, be receptive to pain and grief. Now, this is a surprise. Be receptive to pain and grief. Pain helps us focus on the widest questions of our being. It's a deepener. A life without pain leads to a sparse, shallow existence. Allow yourself to feel your pain fully, then ask, what is my pain trying to teach me now? i tell you one thing that's clear. God isn't the one who causes pain. Jesus said in Matthew 13, an enemy's done this. So we know where it comes from. We know where tragedy and crises, where they come from. But somehow in the midst of that, what, what is pain trying to tell me? Just a simple little DIY. Why? Because it, as it turns out, for the young and aged, it's the, it's the spiritus that actually is the critical, critical determinant in physical and mental well-being. We need, first of all, that spiritual well-being. 
Now, I don't know if you caught this. At the heart of this prayer that John prays, there's a word that appears three times. Do you see it? It, it jumps out more if you... Well, we read it again. But in the Greek, let me read it as it literally reads. To my dear friend, to my, to my loved friend Gaius, whom I love... There it is twice now. Whom I love in the truth. Dear loved friend, I pray that you may enjoy good health and on and on. Three times the word love tucked away in, into those opening two lines. And of course, John is the apostle of love. And if you just turn a page back to First uh, John 4... We know why. Look at, look, at, look at 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love because He first loved us. I mean, you can be an atheist. But if you love someone with a, with a self-sacrificing manner, you are, you, you are the conduit for a love that comes from the single source in the universe. It is a self-sacrificing God. We love because He first loved us. You can, you can consider yourself an agnostic. You can call yourself a believer. But if you love somebody in a self-sacrificing manner, that holy fire is ignited from one flaming source. John says, hey, it's not we love him or her. It's just we love, period, because He first loved us. How did He first love us? Drop drop backwards in the chapter to verse 10, and this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We had David Ashrick with us this last week, an incredible experience uh, on this campus. If you go on the website, I think it would be the Andrews website, you'll, you'll get all uh, 10 or 11 of his teachings. But we went again and again to the pinnacle, to the summit of self-sacrificing love, to the summit of the cross, to Calvary. It's the only place. If you have an inkling to love someone in that self-sacrificing manner, there's only one source. Chem chemicals can't do it. Ideologies cannot create it. There's only one source. And it is the Almighty God who gave up His life on Calvary. Steps to Christ, that little classic. Uh, these profound words, such love is without parallel. The matchless love of God for a world that did not love Him. The more we study the divine character in the light of the cross, the more we see tenderness. We see mercy, tenderness, and forgiveness blended with equity and justice. And the more clearly we discern innumerable evidences of a love that is infinite and a tender pity surpassing a mother's yearning sympathy for a wayward child. Maybe we could read that. A tender pity surpassing a husband's undying love for his wife with Alzheimer's. Because the fact of the matter is, it's really hard for you and me to grasp this self-sacrificing business. It just doesn't, you know, I, I get it. We, talk, we, 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 we go to the cross. But sometimes... An earthy story, we hear in it the faint echoes that help us to discern what is this self-sacrificing love about. I want to read that story to you in closing. It's a love story of Robertson and Muriel McQuilkin. Karen and I have just finished reading a, a book on marriage written by Gary Thomas. Subtitle, the title of the book, A Lifelong Love, What If Marriage is About More Than Just Staying Together. So we just finished it a few Sundays. We just read on Sundays. And this story 
and it speaks for itself. Let me read it to you. So Thomas is writing first. I, I've looked at, and he's a counselor. I've looked into the faces of more women than I can bear as they told me of how they were diagnosed with multiple sclerosis or cancer or Parkinson's, and, and the husband decided to take the medical diagnosis as an escape clause to find a woman who wasn't broken. One medical doctor said that the number is actually around 70%, that seven out of ten men, upon hearing of a wife's cataclysmic medical diagnosis, leave the marriage. Whew. Yeah. One man who challenges me to this day with his entirely different response is Dr. Robertson McQuilkin, past president of Columbia International University from 1968 to 1990. There was a time when Dr. McQuilkin and his wife Muriel were a power couple in Christian circles, often headlining conferences. That all changed when a doctor at Duke confirmed that Muriel had Alzheimer's. Because the McQuilkins were a popular couple, Robertson received every kind of legitimate and illegitimate advice you can imagine as to what would cure his wife. So he finally told everyone to please just stop with the suggestions. In his words, we would trust the Lord to work a miracle in Muriel if he so desired, or work a miracle in me if he didn't. Now, Gary Thomas responds, this is such a stellar statement from a husband. I mean, Lord, I pray that you would do a physical miracle in my wife, but if you choose not to, then work a spiritual miracle in me so that I can love her well unto the end. Wow, again. And that's what he did. Muriel loved art, so Robertson took her to the Tate Galleries in London. You've been there, perhaps, where some of Muriel's favorite works were kept. Unfortunately, the disease had advanced to such a state that Muriel already had good days and bad days, and this was not a good day. Robertson recounted, a great sadness swept over me as I watched her rush through the gallery with never a glance at the masterwork she had loved so long. Robertson grieved that in one sense part of his wife was already gone. At the airport on their way home, while waiting for their flight to leave, Muriel got restless. Robertson had learned that in such circumstances it was best to just let her roam, so he would trail behind her carrying their bags and sat when Muriel wanted to sit and then got up and followed her again when she wanted to walk. Sometimes he practically had to jog, still toting those bags, trying to keep up. Muriel eventually sat down across from a businesswoman whose dress and demeanor screened power, influence, and success, a woman working diligently at her laptop. Muriel kept up with her ADD-like fidgeting, but she always returned to the same seat across from the businesswoman. Every time Robertson followed Muriel to make sure she was okay, before long they'd return from yet another short jump, jump to that same seat. And one time when they returned, the businesswoman quietly spoke. Now nobody else was around, so Robertson assumed she was talking to him. Pardon? Oh, she said, slightly embarrassed, I was just asking myself, will I ever find a man to love me like that? Yeah, there's our third wow. For her part, Muriel kept on loving Robertson as well, as best she could. That's what led to his resignation. 
During the latter days of Roberts, Robertson's college presidency, Muriel would chase after him, sometimes as many as ten times a day, speed walking on her way to his office. Sometimes she lost her way, but she just kept walking anyway, desperate to find the one person with whom she felt at home. One night as Robertson helped Muriel undress, he recoiled at the sight of her bloody feet. Earlier in the day, she had so panicked to get out of the house to find him that she had neglected to put on her shoes and had ripped much of the skin off the bottom of her feet. That was it for Robertson. He decided to lay aside the power of his position, the prestige of his employment, the intellectual stimulation of the college environment to which he had dedicated his life, and to stay home with his wife. In a farewell address, he explained that it wasn't in the end all that hard. I quote now, the decision to come to Columbia was the most difficult I have had to make. The decision to leave 22 years later, though painful, was, was one of the easiest. The decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. Wow. Oh, love, that will not let me go. Sometimes in another story, we see it more clearly. It's the love of God for you. It's the love of God for me. It may be that when you graduated from this place, you rather unintentionally, perhaps, graduated from God. You got out into the busy world that's been, that was beckoning you. And of course, first it was the demands of your career, and then it was the growing family, and of course, thrown in the long stress hours of simply surviving. And then you woke up one day empty, no well-being here. And you thought to yourself, if only it were simple for me to go back. I've got some great news for you. It is simple for you to come back to Jesus. All you have to do is say something to him in your mind that goes something like this, Christ Jesus. I need to come home. I don't want to go back to where I came from. I need you to heal me. I need you to heal me physically. I need you to heal me mentally. I need you to heal me spiritually. I come back just, just as I am. I can't change myself, but you can change me. And if you're willing to take me back, I'm back. That's all you have to say. And do you know what? The God who has loved you forever and has dogged you every step of the way is standing right there. And with your intellectual assent, I take it. I've been, I've been counting the days. My friend, you're not here by accident. 
You're not here just to say hi to a few people you've missed seeing. Somebody has been gunning for you. And right now, you're where he can have you. You just have to say to him, is this homecoming weekend? Dear Christ, by your grace, through your love, I'm coming home. That's it.